Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Radio Octop Talk. This is your host, Rachna. I am super excited today to speak with Aruna Kunaraj. She's a dynamic artist, maker, and crafting guru from Toronto, Canada. You'll find Aruna at Buku. It's a studio and shop that she co-founded with her husband, John Booth. John is also an artist and works primarily with wood and furniture. Aruna and John focus on slow, handmade processes and natural materials. At Buku, you'll find their textiles, bags, furniture, wall art, and much more. They make everything by hand, and they make it right there. Aruna is credited with making crafting cool, fun, and accessible. She wrote a book on punch needle technique and practically overnight turned this vintage craft into a contemporary phenomenon. Her next book is about visible mending, and we'll hear more about that shortly. You might recognize from Aruna's name that she's Lao. She immigrated to Canada when she was about four years old, and she's equally rooted in her Lao heritage and Canadian upbringing. A few years back, she visited us in Luang Prabang, and our weavers were so thrilled to meet a successful Lao artist. We even collaborated with her on a project, which for us was a dream come true. While we wait for Aruna to visit us again, we thought we'd go over to her and hear what she's been up to lately. So let's head over to Toronto and check in with Aruna at Buku Studio. Sabaydi Aruna, um, welcome to Radio Up Up Talk. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, so let's get started with hearing a little bit about you. Um, for someone who has not visited Buku or your studio and storefront in Toronto, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Well, um, the business is a, a textile business as well as um, wood um, furniture and accessories made by my husband. And we started the business in 2002. And my my textile designs mainly consist of screen printed um, original drawings. And I also do a lot of other textile work like um, needlework and embroidery and um also, um, punch needle, which I wrote a book about, and um, and and I do some other different types of things. So, just a combination of a lot of different things, and um, both of our work have a very um, sort of handmade quality to them. We we make everything here in the studio, and um, it's not mass produced. So they have a really um, um, you could definitely tell that you know someone's made it, and um, and we don't produce outside of our, our studio. And if you come and visit us, our storefront in Toronto, um, you walk into the shop and we have like our showroom and our shop there. And we also have um, um, two sewing machines and that's where you'll find my mother and she helps me sew full time. And then as you go further into the back of the studio, you have like our shipping area, our stock area, and then also where we do all the cutting and printing. And then we actually live upstairs above the shop. Um, so this area in Toronto, it, it's, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, it, it was like a mom and pop shop. So you would have your business downstairs and you would live upstairs. So we're kind of continuing that that tradition. Oh, I love that. And thank you for taking us through the shop um, and your workspace. So, Arina, you've created a really successful crafting studio. I mean, not just in the, the 
kind of textiles and furniture and accessories that you sell, but also like in creating a really successful home craft movement, um, making crafting cool, accessible, and fun. I mean, your book that you mentioned a minute ago, the Punch Needle book, was translated in multiple languages and so popular. Uh, what do you think is the secret to your success? I think really the key to um, to our success is that we, we essentially love what we do. And I think it comes through in the work. Um, it doesn't feel like work to us. It's there. The things that we make are pretty much an extension of who we are. And I feel like that, that becomes a really, you know, key component. It's almost like our, our, our philosophy is to kind of make something first and then figure out how to make money from it afterwards rather than making something, you know, to sell because then, you know, your, your mindset is kind of different. And, and I think the fact that, you know, um, a lot of the, the things that I'm interested to with my work is this component of learning. And I've tried to combine that with, with how I approach in, um, in just what we do every day and also like on social media, because I feel that a lot of the people who, who buy our work and who, who follow what we do are our makers as well. And I feel like that, um, that sort of idea of sharing kind of creates this kind of community. And I think that that's how, um, the work has kind of become successful too, is, is, is how it's been sort of accepted by the community and trying to kind of expand it beyond just the products itself, but about, um, the process behind it. And I think people are really interested in that idea of process. Um, and I think it makes them, um, like consumers, it makes them appreciate how, um, when they see how something is made, it, it just, it just puts more value into it. Like when I, I remember when I was visiting, um, you know, a few years ago in Luangpabang and I've been, went to the studio at Akpaktok and, you know, you see the women sitting there weaving and making these items and then you would have the gift shop, you know, across the way. And it's, it's like you, you, you know, it was like a person, a craftsperson making it. it. It gives you that connection to the piece a lot more than just something that could have been made in a factory by someone that was faceless. So I think that that connection and the way you guys are doing it and, and the way we're doing it with our, you know, studio being in the back of our shop, they get to see, you know, me actually printing and, and doing the work and my mom sitting there sewing. And I think all of those connections really kind of speak more about the, the value of handmade and, and how that the part of the process is just as important as, as the end result of the piece, I think. So I should mention that you um, are also an author we talked about your book, um, Punch Needle, a second ago. But your, let's talk about your latest book, which is due out in November, I believe. It's a guide to visible mending. Yes. Um, mending has been talked about as creative, functioning, healing. It's even been called an act of rebellion against the forces of rampant consumerism. Mm -hmm. What inspired you to focus on mending? Well, it was interesting because, you know, when... When I was doing it, it wasn't seen as something that, you know, I just, it was, a, it was sort of more as a means to kind of, you know, prolong things. And, you know, with my children, um, especially my daughter, she like really loves her things and like she will refuse to buy something new. So I was, you know, repairing it and, and fixing it. And, and then I was starting to kind of show that on social media, but it's, it's, it's stuff that I've grown up with. I mean, like when, when we came to Canada, we didn't have any money. And, and so my mother made our clothes and my mother would fix our clothes, you know, 
I would have like such, you know, thick layers of fabric on my knees from all the patching. And, and it was just sort of, you didn't really see it as something that was, that, that you see it as today. It was just more of a way of just, you know, keeping your things longer because we didn't have a lot of money to buy a lot of new things, you know? And, and then that kind of mindset and thinking, it kind of just sort of stuck with me. Like, even though I make, you know, goods, I'm not a really big consumer. Like I make a lot of my clothes and a lot of the stuff that I do buy from stores I, I have for like a really long time. I don't really go through things that quickly. And so that idea, and then also in, in practice in, in our studio, you know, you spend a lot of money on materials and you kind of like start to hang on to bits and pieces as you're working because every element is, is valuable. And also you don't want to, you know, throw things out and be wasteful. And so I started, you know, um, including patchwork into, into my, um, into my repertoire with my work. And what I was discovering was that the patchwork became almost like an escape for me from the production work. And I liked the idea of creating something that was one of a kind. And, you know, it was also very satisfying because I was using up all these remnants from, from other projects. And, and then they became these really covetable things because I only made one of each thing. And so everyone who was getting it knew that they were um, one-offs and, and it made them even more special. And, and it was sort of like kind of almost like double duty with that. And with mending, I find like, you know, when you, when you have to like sit there and mend a hole in a sweater, that activity of putting something back together and repairing something is so meditative because you're, you're basically slowing down all the busyness of your day and really focusing on this, on this repetitive movement of, of stitching. And I think there's also something sort of you know, psychological too, to that idea of, of mending and fixing a hole. And, and once you fix that hole, it's almost like you made it better <laughs> because, you know, the idea behind it is that why hide it? it? It becomes this, you know, gestural moment that you're adding to like a sweater or a pair of pants. And it becomes almost like a visual language that you're adding. And it has its own story of how you did it and the movements and the lines from all the stitches. So there was something that was, it was almost like telling a story in its piece too. And so why hide it, make it visible and make it a part of the piece. And then it, in most cases, I felt like it added to the piece, you know, like, you know, my husband in the book has like this brown sweater that is, you know, not that interesting. And then now with all the men's, it's like, makes it such like a more interesting object, you know? Aruna, you framed the book around three main concepts. Can you elaborate on that, please? It was repair, reuse, and renew, because I wanted to look at garments and things that we had around our house in those three different ways. So the repair would be like, you know, with the, the weaving mend of, of sweaters and socks, and then, you know, doing um, sashiko stitches on, you know, on the knees and all these different things that you would really attached to repairing and then reuse would be more of the patchwork pieces because I do a lot of the patchwork so so things that you have remnants of and then putting those pieces together to make something like a whole new shape a whole new item from all those small bits and pieces of fabric and then with renew it was taking objects that you had that there was absolutely nothing wrong with them but maybe you're tired of it or maybe it didn't it felt like it needed some refreshing so um, 
I did projects where there was block printing that was done on like a sweater and then embroidery onto the surface. And, you know, just sort of adding almost sort of decorative elements that kind of gives it a new life so that you can wear it again and enjoy wearing it. Um, so those were the kind of three different areas that I was focusing the ideas around. Um, and I felt like it gave it more of like, um, like I felt like it was very much like it embodied everything that I was working on and then things that I was thinking, like I didn't want to do a book that was just repair, you know, like I felt like all three of those elements worked really well together, making it more of like a, a unique book so that it's, it stands apart from books that were just about mending. Like there was all these elements of the patchwork and, and building and making other things that I felt really, really interesting. Like one of the projects that I love was just taking like old bed sheets and dyeing it with indigo and then cutting up those pieces to make like a quilt, you know, like a really beautiful, mm. colorful, you know, different tones of indigo quilt. And it's like, you know, and that was just, you know, using up old bed sheets. Like it, it just took something that was just something that you may have discarded or not used anymore and just really breathed new life to it. And, and just the whole process of that, I felt was really, really interesting. So those are kind of the ideas behind the book. Sounds lovely. And I, I love the idea of making the quilt. And um, I think I might try it with my daughter as well. So, you know, Aruna, my colleague calls you a modern maker. And I feel like it really fits um, because on, on the one hand, your work has a very nostalgic quality. and But it's also like definitely in the here and now. And then it whisks you off to another time just as quickly. There's a traveling, exploration, discovery quality to it. And a minute ago, you talked about sashiko. And I feel like the sashiko and boro techniques from Japan, the, the patch and running stitch, mending and quilting, is a really a perfect example of this. And, and I'll tell you, when I was reading about mending and your work, I... I kind of went down a rabbit hole reading about the history of these techniques and their aesthetic qualities and their social value. And it was like, I went on this like amazing trip of discovery, you know? Um, so how do you strike a balance between the past and present? And what do you feel like makes your work modern? Uh, is, is this something you think about or is it something that takes shape organically during the creative process? It's definitely not something that I, I think about and I set out to do. I think it does take an organic shape, you know. I think that, um, you know, everything that I do is definitely, like, old. I mean, like, block printing. I mean, it's been around for, you know, centuries. And, and it's – I think it's the – I think it's really the the, the way I um, choose the colors and the way I design the patterns and just composing – all that together, I think, is what gives it its modern quality. Um, but I'm definitely drawn to the, um, you know, sort of older techniques for sure. Those things are kind of like my basis for, for where I go with everything. And there's so much appreciation and love for all those techniques. And, like, I try to, with um, the projects that I was doing, trying to, you know, do sort of uh, my own take on on using those techniques rather than trying to, you know, uh, mimic the the way it was done traditionally. And I think that that kind of adds to the modern value of it as well. Um, but I feel that also, you know, 
Um, what was really interesting was I think with, with visible mending and when I was doing the punch needle, they're both like techniques that have been around for a really long time. And, and what's interesting is that, um, you know, me doing it and keeping it out there as well as other makers, it kind of, um, I think it kind of prolongs it and keeps it going because then the next generation, the younger makers, they see it, they take it on, they do it. And, and I think it's almost like we're kind of keeping it alive, which I think is wonderful. And then it'll be interesting to see how their take is as they go on and, and they do things. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely not something that I set out to do. Um, it's just, just comes, it just comes, you know, as I do it organically. Irina, you mentioned a while ago um, that you're Lao and you came to Canada when you were four. And recently you came back to Laos and actually you visited us at Okpoptok in Luang Prabang and you stayed with us and you took part in our classes and, and we ended up doing a collaboration with you. Um, for our team, um, and they still talk about it, it was very inspiring to work with a successful Lao artist. Oh, and wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and um, and I wanted to know what did you get out of this collaboration? Well, it was definitely the highlight of my career for sure. Well, it was something that was really important to me, and I wanted to do more, but it's really hard. You know, the shipping to Canada is so expensive, and um, you know, and I always sort of kind of rack my brain to kind of figure out another way. I mean, I do a lot of work with um, with ACE camps. So in the future, I'll definitely be there to to run a workshop for sure. Um, so I will return soon at some point once everything is okay. Um, well, for me, it was just interesting to um, to kind of get back to my roots in a way because you know I, I I've been doing um, the textile work for so long, and then you you kind of forget like where it all came from. When I went back there with my mom, it was the first time I visited Laos, actually, since oh, leaving oh, there. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was the first time. It was just one of those trips where, you know, you go to Laos, you know, it, um, it's expensive to fly. So when you go, you, you know, you don't want to go there for like a short period of time. You want to go there for a while. And even even that time when I came up, it wasn't even that long. It was just it's just with with when you run a, um, your own business, you know, you can't leave for like a month or so. It's just it's almost kind of detrimental to your business, especially when you're the person who's like the key factor and everything. And so when we planned it, we actually planned it over like the Christmas holidays, because usually like in our business, we take a little bit of a break during that time. And I remember it was this it was it was kind of um, interesting feeling like when I, when I landed and when I was there, I felt like, I felt like I really belong, but then I also felt like I was really out of place. It was just a weird feeling. Like, like you get there and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to fit in perfectly. But then you realize you stand out. Like they know you're not from there, even though you're, you know, you're culturally loud. And it was such a strange feeling, but it was such a, it was so nice to be around like a lot of people that that looked like me and talked a language that I understood. And it was it was a really amazing feeling. And then when I went there to to visit the women and in the, the studios and then doing the workshops, it was just I honestly didn't want to leave. I just thought it was the most, you know, like it's situated in such a beautiful spot. And like the the, the people who were teaching the workshops were just so gracious and lovely. And it was just such a wonderful experience, you know, to be there. And then to, I was, I was lucky that one of my, um, 
designs was still on the loom. So I was able to kind of see her weave it. And it was just, it just blew my mind away because, you know, I did weaving on, you know, sort of different types of looms. And these looms have all these strings that are like attached to each other for the designs. And I don't even know how these women can figure out where to put their hands and they do it so quickly. Um, I know it, those, um, it, that it's pattern mind boggling. About the, the string pattern is, yeah, it boggles my mind as well. Yeah. And like my designs were really, really simple. And so when I would see them working with like the silk, which is finer and it takes longer, very intricate details. I'm just like, you know, I would see my mom wearing, you know, the scenes and like all these wraps and all these different um, traditional garments. And I don't know why it just never keyed in my mind that, yeah, somebody did sit there and weave every little detail. Like I just, you know, I just thought, okay, well, it was like made on a machine or something, but it was just, you definitely, when you see it being made, you have a whole different appreciation for all of that. And I'm just, I'm just amazed that, um, that you guys have that there and, and, and all the stuff that you guys make. Like I stayed at the, at the, at the, it was, a, I don't know if you guys call it a hotel, but at the, uh, the Mekong Villa, we call it. Yeah. And just the way the room was decorated, it was just so beautiful. Like, you know, with all the, all the tapestries that were in there. It's like you want to just put everything in your suitcase when you leave. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you back. So come back anytime and you can stay at the Mekong Villa. And uh, I know everybody would love to see you again. Yeah, so. I de I'm definitely coming back. So Arina, what advice would you give um, an aspiring designer? I know it sounds corny, but I think just to believe in yourself. I think that that's one of the things that we have, you know, they always say that we're our worst critic and you're always kind mm -hmm. of, you know, I, I just feel like you have to kind of believe in yourself and like really love what you do. Like don't, don't make work that is similar to someone else because you feel like that's what people want. Make work that you really love and that you really believe in because I feel that 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 sort of um, belief in yourself will carry you through all the, you know, through the years. Um, and you don't want to do things based on trends and things like that so much because then it kind of dies and fizzles. So like kind of almost put your unique stamp on it. What is your current hashtag? And what hashtag would you use to describe your current MO? I think on my email, I don't know if I still have it, but I always used to always write support handmade. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's kind of an important sort of, you know, I think it's important because I feel that these, I think that's, that's, I think that's what I'm trying to do too with, with doing the punch needle and the mending is trying to keep those traditions alive and, and to kind of keep, handmade going you know like it's really interesting I was um there's a there's a local college here in in Toronto it's, it's called the Ontario College of Art and I went there um for my first uh first four years of of art school and it was like a traditional art school at the time you know you would do drawing painting all these different things and then after I finished grad school I went there to teach for a bit and they were like we got to get rid of drawing because all these kids are interested in doing digital stuff and, you know, Illustrator and, and everything is going to be drawn on a computer. So we should get rid of drawing. We're going to get rid of, 
you know, uh, sculpture class and all these things that are like very much, you know, um, analog and, and things that you do with your hands. And it just blew my mind away because I'm thinking you cannot, like, how do you keep, how do you teach art without teaching drawing, like with the pencil in your hand? It just, and I feel like, I feel like that idea of, of, of handmade working with your hands is so important and that it needs to be supported. It needs to continue because I just can't imagine us moving into this complete digital world. It just, the kids are just going to be like zombies in front of screens, you know? So. <laughs> yes, totally. Um, <laughs> and I also like, you know, the idea of um, support handmade is, is um, so timely as well because Many handmade products made by artisans around the world rely on storytelling, rely on that connection that you talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that happens when there is travel and there is kind of this face coming face to face with the person who's making your things. And um, with kind of COVID and just the current situation of the world where people are not maybe as face-to-face -face as they could be, the, um, a lot of artisans are suffering too, you know? And oh, I think sure, yeah. to, to remind people that there are people that rely on this as their livelihood and it is, and it is important and there is value to it beyond um, just a souvenir item. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that those people who are making those things, they're just, they're also trying to put beauty in the world and they are needed. You know, a lot of times people think that it is something that is not needed. But I think art, design, craftsmen, I think, I think all of that is needed to kind of keep all the beauty in the world. And I think they bring the beauty in the world and they put so much of their heart and soul into making it. So when you're buying the thing, it's like, you're buying, like I said earlier, like a piece of them, you know, and I feel like that's so important. And like you said, it, it helps beyond that, you know, like financially it helps them support their family. There's so much more to the story of that item than just the item itself. I feel yeah, absolutely. And I read this phrase, which I really liked, um, purpose-oriented beauty, you know, functional utilitarian beauty, which I feel really speaks to the kind of work you do as well. You know, there's tremendous beauty, um, but there's also tremendous functionality and utility, and they, they complement each other, not just through the, your process, but also in the final piece. And as somebody who would own it or use it like it's it imparts that philosophy mm -hmm. well I'm glad you can see that that's great Aruna what is your dream collaboration and why well one of one of my favorite um designer like uh like a uh, print design houses is Mary Mecco do you know Mary Mecco yes yes um they're Finnish um and they've been around I guess since the 60s and they do wonderful prints, and that would be like a dream is to design a print for Mary Mecco or, and, you know, and see that print, you know, on home goods, on clothing, on different kinds of things, because um, it's beyond my capacity to do, because, you know, we, we're so small and we do everything here in-house. Um, you know, just yards and yards of fabric with my print on it would be kind of fun to see. What is your mantra? a saying that keeps you inspired and grounded? Well, one that 
my husband always says to me, which I always find that it, it sort of becomes my mantra because it's his mantra, but he always says this too shall pass. And I feel like that's a really good philosophy because I think that sometimes you're kind of um, doing things and you're working and sometimes things can feel really overwhelming or kind of um, hard. And I think the way we live, you have to kind of allow yourself to have those ebbs and flows. And that if you're feeling like stuck or unsure about something, that eventually you will move on to something else that will uplift you. And so I think that's my mantra is that we are always moving like water and you can't really feel like you're always going to be stuck in one, one situation. Things will change always. They always change. And I always like to be positive and say that they change for the better. Well, hopefully, I mean, I think they do. I mean, change is change, right? It's it's going to go one way and then it's going to go the other way. It's also a very Buddhist philosophy of, you know, nothing is permanent things evolve and uh, and we keep going and I think when things are challenging and hard those things are there for us to kind of push us and I think that that's important I think we need to be challenged and I think we need to be pushed I don't think things should be easy you know um and I think you learn from that and you only get stronger from those things and then your decision making gets better that's why you know as you get older (laughs) I always say you get wiser you learn from your mistakes um, you know, and I always think to myself, yeah, the things I could tell my 20 year old self, you know, um, but yeah, I think that that, when you were asking that question earlier, I would, that would be the big thing because I think when I was younger, that was the one thing it was like being really insecure about your decisions and about the things that you want to do and not really kind of having that confidence. And I think that that's, that's part of us too. our success is being able to be confident in the things that we're making that we know that they will work. And, you know, they'll succeed um, because we've learned from mistakes of things that didn't work. Right. So, yeah. So those mistakes are 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 important, I think, to learn from. Well, this has been great, Aruna. Thank you so much. And I'm sorry we had a little bit of a rocky start. And yeah. was, <laughs> We're uh, technology, tech challenge. I know. No, thank you so much for your questions. They were wonderful. And it was really nice chatting with you and, 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 and learning a bit more about you. Yeah. And please do come back to Luang Prabang anytime. It's an open invitation. And we'd love to see you, collaborate with you, um, and just kind of catch up. Yes, for sure. I would love that. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Aruna. You're welcome. Take care. Yeah, you too. You too. Good Bye-bye. And that's a wrap. I was really smiling throughout this conversation. It's always such a pleasure to hear someone speak so earnestly and enthusiastically about their work. And I'm super excited to try out some of Aruna's visible mending suggestions, including making that indigo dyed quilt with my daughter. Please go check out Aruna's work if you're in Toronto or visit her website at www.buku.com. And follow Aruna and John's work on Instagram. And thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again next week. Kapchai lai lai!